My name's Rosie, and for any of you who've heard me on this pod before, you'll know that my work at Hope Not Hate centres on public attitudes to immigration and multiculturalism and understanding how we make communities more resilient to hate. Today, we'll be talking about towns in the time of coronavirus. You might wonder why towns are a Hope Not Hate issue, but our research has shown how changing social, economic and urban conditions affect attitudes to immigration and multiculturalism. Where we live shapes how we see others around us. Many of Britain's towns are confident and optimistic places. They have rich histories and strong identities. But in some places, big economic and demographic changes have put communities under strain. Our research has shown how feelings of loss and decline are giving hatred a foothold in some of Britain's strongest and proudest communities. So today, I'm joined by three great guests. We're going to start with a discussion with two experts on towns to look at how coronavirus is likely to change some of these driving factors. Then I'm going to have a chat with Kim Leadbeater on what this means for our communities and how we can build hope. I'm Will Jennings. I'm uh, co-director of the Centre for Towns uh, and also a professor of political science, public policy, University of Southampton. Um, my name's Nick Mallion. I uh, am a, a cultural regeneration practitioner running a CIC in the northeast uh, called Empty Shop CIC. We do a lot of place-based projects, um, currently working in County Durham, Teesside and North Yorkshire. Brilliant. Thanks very much. So if I start with Will, I know Central Towns are doing a lot of work around kind of what the the landscape is going to look like after the coronavirus outbreak and particularly what that means for towns so i mean why is coronavirus going to be a town's issue well i think the 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 issue facing towns uh, are kind of multiple fold um we've done some analysis looking at the uh, immediate economic exposure of towns and different sorts of places um, to the economic shutdown. And what we've seen is that um, areas that have got a high concentration of um, employment in uh, services, uh, accommodation and uh, tourism are really um, very economically exposed to the effects of um, COVID and the shutdown in the shorter term. And that's actually a lot of you know, coastal, coastal towns, um, some of which you might actually consider quite affluent, but are heavily dependent on tourism, um, that are facing really difficult times in the short term. Um, but then once you start looking a little bit further forward, one of the things we've been looking at is essentially the social economic resilience of different places. And that gives you a slightly different sense of the places that, you know, already have been experiencing sustained economic and social decline, aging populations, you know, kind of falling employment, um, you know, kind of struggling local economies. And those are the places that we think in the longer term are going to really struggle to get things back on track when we are able actually to 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 kind of reopen the economy and get back to work, that those places are going to be um, face the biggest challenge in terms of re, you know reinvigorating the local economy, getting jobs back into places, um, and really giving people a sense that, that things are kind of you know um, happening again. Definitely, and I think I mean we did a piece of research with with Centre for Towns um, a couple of years ago, looking at how attitudes are shaped around some of these issues and places with sustained decline where people feel a sense of loss. They quite often look for someone to blame or some something that has kind of taken that thing away from them. And I think what we saw was that patterns of hostility towards immigration and multiculturalism tended to be concentrated in isolated rural areas, kind of smaller towns, places where there wasn't actually much opportunity for people to access. 
Um, so I'm quite interested in what you're saying as well, because I think I did wonder whether actually we're seeing, we could see a, a decline in the kind of town-city divides that we've seen over recent years, if there is the potential out of this crisis for more people to be working remotely. And I know that banks, so, so I remember reading something that HSBC was looking to shut its, its kind of London headquarters. What do you think about that? I mean, would that change anything between towns and cities where where kind of investment is going? I mean, it, ra- it raises so many interesting questions because there have been some of these kind of immediate um, kind of analyses that have come out saying, oh, well, this is the death of the city. People, there's going to be this huge, large scale exodus from cities. And I think I think many of those are really overstated because, you know, the sorts of there, there are a lot of inequalities in terms of the sectors and the sorts of jobs that can work from home. So, you know, we could we I think we might expect certainly in the medium term to see a change in patterns of um, remote working, working from home. And that might lead to people to you know think um, differently about where they might live but I'm not sure it's going to completely kind of um, you know kind of break you know kind of equalize the town city divide because again you know if you think about the sorts of places that people might move away from as and move move to as they move away from core cities are not going to be evenly distributed so they all tend to be um, smaller towns with um, you know better amenities probably but you know better um, you know kind of better positioned local economies and so you're not necessarily going to see um, a kind of a clean equalization of the kind of d- divide between that kind of core cities where economic growth has been kind of predominantly um, uh, kind of focused and kind of peripheral areas but some peripheral areas might do a little bit better uh, where people go to the go to move to them for uh, kind of lifestyle um, choices but there will still be isolated areas places with you know poor broadband links poor transport links that really s- still aren't viable as places that you could work remotely from knowing that you could maybe go into um, into the kind of the main office one day a month one day a week uh, or have kind of high-speed broadband or so forth so I think we need to be a little bit cautious that you know everything is going to get the world has changed everything is going to you know be different now um, I think a lot of those processes will be very slow um, and they may not kind of even out inequalities they may just give rise to new ones definitely and i think as well you're right to bring up the inequality of it i mean the tuc especially have been doing some work around what this is going to mean for young people and i think if we're looking at the potential of kind of high youth unemployment um they're talking about kind of corona generation of of people leaving school and without jobs um that's quite frightening in the context of areas where there is a lot of decline there's a lot of resentment um, and then also, I think we need to talk about kind of things to do and what actually it means to live in a place that you feel optimistic about. And Nick, I'm going to bring you in a bit because we, we did some polling quite recently and we found that 89% thought that because of the coronavirus outbreak, we're going to see an increase in the decline of the high street and that this is going to kind of be, have an immediate effect. I mean, just 2% of people didn't think that was going to happen. Um, your work is is all about this and kind of what that means. And what impact having a kind of thriving high street and things to do, places to go means for community relations. So talk a bit about kind of what you think the impact's gonna be. Yeah, um, I think it's undoubtedly going to be a a challenging time. Um, The work that we do revolves around taking on empty properties and turning them into sort of uh, civic and and cultural hubs, primarily for, you know, arts and, and and creative activities um, but we also do a lot of festivals in town centres and, and events in shopping centres and, and, and things like that 
and I think it is it is scary to to think about what the implications for that are, and less so potentially for one-off events and public celebrations, which, let's face it, in the short to medium term, maybe non-existent in in the way that we previously understood them. But that uh, evidence shows that that longer term people do tend to come back from things like. Uh, epidemics like SARS or, or uh, terrorist attacks like the Boston uh, Marathon bombing and, and do want that um, sense of community celebration. So I think festivals and events and one-off activities that, you know, the, the headline stuff might might make a return and, and, and sort of come back in a way that's reasonably, um, you know, recognisable. But I think the, the year-round activity is where I think we're going to see a really short, sharp shock. So we do have to be aware that things are going to uh, change, but I think it's it's possible that that radical challenge and radical uh, change may also lead to to new solutions as well, and um, and hopefully um, sort of a greater democratisation and, and community ownership of uh, of some of those assets and and using things like empty shops to set up community hubs as well. Um, for example, if you look at the the trend around community pub ownership um, that. Uh, in 2019, that was 120 community pubs that were owned, um, with a further 1,250 registered as community assets across the country. Um, now that number of community-owned pubs is, is approaching closer to 200 through the support of Power to Change and the Plunkett Foundation. But just to pick up on, you know, on on that that key thread about you know inequality, uh, you know, it, it, it's definitely the case that where the community asset transfers and community ownership has happened in the past. It has been in areas with high cultural capital and social capital and, and you know, ready-made volunteer bases and that sort of thing. Definitely, because I think one of the things that's been so encouraging coming out of this crisis is the community spirit that we've seen. And I can sometimes be a bit cynical about it, but it, but it really has happened. And I mean, our polling's showing that more than half of people have come out to join Clap for Carers, more than a third of people have been delivering food parcels to neighbours. I mean, people really have come together and it's sad in a way that it takes a crisis to do it, but it, it does seem like it has the potential to be a moment for change. And I think there's some kind of, some concern around this with some of the things that you, you're both talking about as well, because I think, as you say, it's there's a very stark difference between places that have the community infrastructure and places that don't. And I think if we're looking at, for example, football clubs, if you're looking at a poor isolated town, most of the community infrastructure for that place will surround pubs or football clubs. And these are suddenly going to be bits of bits of the community that are going to be under threat. And I think off the back of years of decline, the closure of community centres, spaces for young people, I mean, what do you think that's going to mean for community relations if we're also seeing high unemployment and all sorts of other things that can, can start to feed resentment? I think one of the real challenges that we face is thinking that, you know, kind of, it, I mean, I think the community spirit is going to be the only solution. I think it's absolutely um, clear that people pulling together is going to be really important. But I think we shouldn't get a, away from the fact that before COVID, there was growing awareness of the need to tackle regional inequalities and place-based inequalities. And we're going to think, need to think really clearly and, and, and in a very focused way about how we can target those because a lot of the places that were struggling um, are going to be really, you know, those, those, some of those community assets, um, you know, high streets, community pubs, um, which will have already been struggling, will have been the places that are most vulnerable to the economic effects of, of COVID. 
then they may find it most difficult to come back. And so not only are we going to need to think about, you know, people and, you know, kind of giving support to communities to rebuild their communities, but actually those deep, um, you know, place-based inequalities that are in kind of social economic capital are, are really going to be, need to be addressed. And, you know, it's easy to, to on one level say, oh, well, the government's been knocked off its levelling up agenda by this, by this pandemic, but it just makes those sorts of um, geographical inequalities more stark, um, you know, and more, um, and more urgent to be addressed. Yeah, I, th I think that's absolutely right. And, and I think the key thing that, that we see here is that, that this is a, a conversation that's ongoing and that, uh, that the, the impact of COVID-19 is likely to, you know, to potentially see a lot of towns, um, particularly smaller marginalised towns um, that aren't, you know, uh, particularly large populations or don't necessarily have um, you know a, a great economic um, significance to their local authority potentially um, they are that's that's where the that's where the real battleground is going to be but I also feel like if you look at the the journey that cities have been on as a in the last sort of you know 30 40 years that that you think about the the narratives around uh, around the city in crisis in the 80s and 90s and what was required in that in that context was the setting up of urban development corporations and, and the the planning act in 1980 that, that set the table for that regeneration now there's an awful lot wrong with the way that that was carried out and there's an awful lot wrong uh, with the the way in which that entrenched um, inequalities but if you think about the, the processes and the development of, of symbolic value, the experience economy, the way that, the way that again, that for me, culture uh, became something that went from being uh, a marginal thing uh, to being uh, a central thing to the way that, that we understood our, our places. Um, and, it, you know, if you think about every, cult, culture ranging from, you know, cultural experiences, museums, galleries, eating out, etc., but also personal cultures and identities and, you know, LGBTQ um, areas like Canal Street suddenly going from, from being something that local authorities shied away from to being something that, that Manchester was really embraced in, in a large way. I think the real challenge is how do we do that and ensure that, that, we, that we support those pro the processes that need to come next whilst also shying away from uh, and, and, and rejecting the, uh, the structural uh, processes that, are, that, that have promoted that inequality within cities. And that, you know, what you saw with, with cities was that consumer, consumerism, essentially, the rampant sort of consumerism that, was, that drove that economic regeneration and, and drove the, the, you know, the, the renaissance of cities. How do we do that in towns? And how do we do that in a way that that, um, that promotes civic participation? How do we do it in a way that, that promotes democratization rather than gentrification? Um, and, you know, I think if you look at towns, um, for me, one of the key things I look at in a town is whether it's got a Weatherspoons, because a Weatherspoons has oddly stepped in to provide a community hub um, in a lot of places. And, and certainly in a lot of the places we work, the Weatherspoons is the one place where you can access people where you can have a conversation where you find people who are engaged in, in their place at the same time weatherspoons isn't somewhere that we particularly want to um you know just to, to represent as an example of best practice so what it is actually is it demonstrates to us that there's a gap 
Whereas if you had an ethical Weatherspoons that was run by the community with volunteers that allowed young people who were out of work to get experience and, and to, to um, you know, to play a role at the, the key sort of community pub in their town centre, then that, that could potentially work. Because one of the issues we also face up here in the northeast is um, that a lot of our towns aren't even appealing to Weatherspoons, <laughs> And that um, what you have is uh, a number of towns in this area where Weatherspoons have looked at it and said, you know what, we do absolutely fine by day because of the number of unemployed people, the number of people who are, who are uh, essentially economically inactive, who would spend a lot of time in and money in, in here. What we wouldn't have is a nighttime economy and therefore we won't open because we, we, don't, we don't see it as viable. So if it's not even appealing to Weatherspoons, we need a motive for bringing people together for that shared experience, for those cultural and community values, whether it's pubs, whether it's restaurants, art centres, whatever, that isn't driven by a profit motive. I think it's really, really interesting what you're saying as well, because I think quite often if you start talking about towns, people quite kind of see you as some kind of romanticised thing where you want to go back to a time where there was the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. And it's it's not quite like that. I mean, there's a reason that people stopped shopping at local shops and went to the supermarket. It's much more convenient. And I think if we're looking at some of these things as well, it's how can we think about these things a bit differently? And how can we think about this with a community mindset as well? And, and think about the way that people use spaces. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's interesting that we have a conversation around you know, pubs is the, is, the, is the kind of the focus as to why um, we're not looking at other sorts of social institutions. So what, what is missing in our society? I don't think we've had those sorts of profound conversation um, really for some, some time as to, you know, the, the, you know, the decline of particular social institutions, uh, you know, kind of local clubs, you know, uh, youth centres and so forth. I think we just kind of, we, we, we really narrowed the focus of the discussion. But I think in terms of what Nick was saying, I think something that's re really important and the Centre for Towns have really been interested in is the question of footfall, which is that, you know, as, and, 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 and purchasing power is that as you have aging populations, fewer people spending their time in, in towns, partly because of commuting patterns about kind of the, the kind of the population flows in the daytime, um, that really um, hits places because there just aren't enough people um, you know accessing the local economy to sustain local business and so I think you know I, I think it's a bit trite to start say, talking about kind of COVID as presenting opportunities but I do think as we start to look to how we might reinvent um, the UK's economy it might be something to do with the, the, the kind of the, the, an emphasis on the localness of business and the localness of services and I think one of the interesting things about how um, firms and kind of suppliers have have responded to COVID is the kind of the small um, local firms doing delivery um, finding ways to, to kind of serve their, their local economy and that that possibly gives a little bit of hope in the sense that it's actually kind of shocked a lot of people to start thinking a little bit differently about how they do business and it might give us hope that we might you know and there might be demand for greater localness of service so I think that, that seems really key as part of this conversation about where, where we need to shift our mindset from those kind of large national um, structures that, you know, are kind of um, create, you know, kind of heavy dependence on um, those kind of supply chains and often very kind of, you know, uh, unfriendly kind of working practices in terms of kind of large delivery firms and kind of the, those people at the front line of COVID and start thinking more locally about how we organize our social economic lives. Definitely. And I think if we if we just talk a little bit more about what you think this is going to mean for community relations, I mean, if this is the landscape that we're going to be looking at, 
what do you think can be done that can build resilience for some of these communities looking to the tough times ahead? Well, I think that's going to be a kind of a huge question. So I think, I think the, you know, I think one, you need to approach it from, from multiple levels. I think, you know, on one level, it is about, you know, getting the economy working. So there are jobs for people of all ages. I think, you know, I mean, certainly there are general, huge generational issues about people who are entering the workforce and the labor market now are going to face huge challenges, whether or not they have high skills or, or, or not. You know, actually, I think this is going to be, again, um, a crisis that affects uh, many people in many different sectors. And so I think we need to, first of all, start asking the question of, well, what, what can people do? Whose, um, whose lives have been kind of upended by COVID, um, what, what opportunities do they face? Uh, and then we need to start asking questions well about what, what is it that's gonna get kind of places back on, on track in terms of, is it, is it investment? Is it thinking just about doing things completely different? You know, I think, I think you know, one of the issues that's faced kind of high streets is that a lot of the places that have been, we know have been struggling for a long, long time, this just could be the shock that really just kind of pushes things over the edge. And so I think as part of the conversation about where we go, we need to have a really kind of creative conversation about what is the, what is the nature of a, of a kind of a town centre, of a high street. Um, and I think we're going, and I think the challenge will be that we're going to need to have those conversations at very high speed and try not to make mistakes that lead us on the sorts of urban planning failures that we've seen over history of, you know, whether it's to do with kind of 1950s architecture or all the sorts of kind of restructuring of, of towns around road networks that I think ultimately in hindsight you say were a mistake and to make sure we make the right decisions about how places are changing and, and the opportunities given to, to local, local people in terms of jobs, skills, you know, public space, environment, and to make all those decisions in a very short period of time in very trying financial situation i think it's going to be a huge challenge and requires a real national effort in terms of kind of policy thinking i would agree with uh with with that entirely that, that it is you know it will require radical rethinking and it will require um a, a real reshaping of what we expect potentially from our towns um and our town centers but i also feel like that that means that we also need to to do you reimagine what we might feel is expected of us in our towns? And, and for me, you know, that, that we've, we've, we need to find a way to, um, to promote footfall and, you know, and, and participation in our town centres in order to, you know, to meet some of those challenges. And, and you know, part of the issue is in, you know, in a lot of it, uh, the parts of, of the northeast and, and the north of England where we work is that, you know, that, that there is no profit motive there is no desire to um you know to improve um the the the, the prospects of a particular place because uh, essentially you know there, there isn't enough footfall um as i say if you, if you start to think about removing that profit motive and and driving the uh, the town centers as civic vehicles if you think of town centers as having a, a function the same as, as a library does. It's where you go for your information, for your printing, for your socializing, you know, for, for all of those civic amenities in, in theory, which obviously is a long way away from where libraries are at the moment. But how do we, you know, how do we promote that? And, and what is it, what can the, the key drivers of that be? And again, in County Durham, um, what we what we experienced in the early 20th century sort of pre-war 
was the the generation of a, a sort of a prototype welfare state long before the beverage report which was founded on the trade union movement and it was that people would chip in an extra sub in their town or village to ensure that there was a doctor or, or a library or a reading room within their welfare hall and um I, you know, I don't think we should go back to subscription services, but I suspect it may be one of the ways in which things change in the coming sort of decades uh, that we do end up with with subscription-based social um, infrastructure. And you know, I, I personally would would see that again as as potentially a planning failure. Whereas if we could produce a, a democratic um, process that allowed for town centres to be the places where you, you have your libraries, your reading rooms, your every town had a brass band in County Durham um, and we still have 27 now and that's the legacy, the long-lasting legacy of, of that infrastructure that was put in place by the trade union movement you know a hundred years ago. And I think it does it does seem to be really a kind of I think a, a kind of a point where we've we've not really made a lot of progress is that we know that the traditional high street isn't sustainable in its current form, but we haven't had a proper conversation about what you know high streets in the centre of towns might look like. I think often there's just a kind of view that you stick flats in there and you know you have kind of high street living. But you're quite right. The kind of question that we should be asking is, well, what sorts of social institutions can we have um, taking those those spots in high streets that don't leave us with closed up um, storefronts that give people this sense of kind of palpable decline? What what are how can we repurpose public space? Um, and how can the, you know how can government policy actually facilitate that? Because I think it does require that. That's an issue where you know the government does need to step in. Um, and things like the towns fund might be a kind of a starting point, but we really need a kind of really kind of quite, quite radical policy offer that starts to say actually our town centres aren't going to look like they used to, and they're going to need to be repurposed in kind of in terms of social institutions uh, and kind of public spaces. Um, that where people congregate, as you say, congregate, um, you know, and and feel, you know, some sort of sense of kind of ownership and membership of their their place. I was just going to say, in doing so in a way that doesn't uh, produce something like category D status, which is what absolutely you know did for a, a number of the uh, a number of the sort of post-industrial towns in in uh, in the in the north of England in the the, the latter part of the twentieth century. Definitely. I mean, I think there, there is some grounds for hope that this could be the potential to rethink things with a bit more of a kind of socially conscious hat on. And I think for us, that's going to be the most important thing. I mean, we talk about towns because we worry that if people feel all these resentments and frustrations, there's space for opportunists to, to come in and exploit some of those fears. Um, so thank you very much to both of you. Um, it's been really, really interesting um, and a useful conversation. Been great. Thank you. And here's my chat with Kim Ledbeater. Hi, so my name's Kim Ledbeater and I work as an ambassador for the Joe Cox Foundation uh, and I also chair a local volunteer group called More in Common, Batley and Spen who are based in West Yorkshire. Um, and the reason I do both of those things is because um, I am the sister of Joe Cox, the MP who was um, murdered in June 2016 and since Joe was killed I spent a lot of my time creating a legacy for her and um, working nationally and locally on some of the issues that she cared about.
I mean, we're really interested in talking to you because your work has been dedicated to bringing people together across difference. Um, you've been doing some incredible things, but I mean, with coronavirus at the moment, clearly things are a bit different. People can't be brought together in the way that we're quite used to. So um, just wondered if you could talk a bit about kind of how this has impacted you at the moment and, and the work that Maureen Common are doing. Yeah, I mean, the current situation has had a big impact on us, although I am sort of pleased to say that we are busier than ever because what we've sort of done is flip a lot of our work um, to try and help with the crisis. So, um, for example, the Great Get Together campaign, which we do on what would have been Joe's birthday, where we ha have people organising huge events up and down the country, um, getting people together. We've changed that. And actually, instead of organising big events where people are physically getting together, we're asking people to celebrate the power of community by doing small acts of kindness, compassion and connection at a very local level or indeed in a virtual way so the great get together isn't what it would have been but it's also something that can really help with this current situation and um, the other thing that we've done at a national level through the joe cox foundation is set up the connection coalition um, and this was really around bringing together organizations who are working hard in the crisis to keep people connected um, and look at some of the issues that we're all facing ranging from grief bereavement loneliness mental health so we've partnered with some big organizations like the red cross and mind um, and so far we've got over 250 organizations signed up to the connection coalition and, and they range from those those big organizations to small grassroots organizations as well um, so the connection coalition is really important and i think that'll be a good way as well of trying to come out of this situation with with some positives as well and, and then at a very local level the, the volunteer group that i chair and are doing things around helping um, with the localised COVID response. So we've had some of our volunteers delivering food parcels and uh, collecting prescriptions, and we're heavily involved with the local befriending service. So we've really covered, you know, which again is one of the things I love about Joe's Foundation, we cover some of the big picture national stuff, but we're also very much on the ground in communities, grassroots, particularly here in West Yorkshire. Um, in what I call the real world. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that we've seen, so we've been doing a lot of polling over the, like kind of since the crisis kicked off, um, looking at kind of what COVID is doing to public attitudes, how things are changing for people's kind of hopes and fears. And I think what has been surprising and encouraging in, in the best way um, is that we've actually seen that people's response to community has has really increased so i mean community is always seen as this kind of slightly fluffy thing that people don't always associate with um but since coronavirus the, the coronavirus outbreak we've seen i mean over half the population have said they've joined in with the thursday clap for carers we've seen kind of 70 80 percent of people saying that community is really really important to them and that's something we we just haven't seen before and in the same way uh, kind of more than a third of people dropping off food parcels to neighbors it's i wonder whether you kind of agree that this this is a bit of a moment for change and that community spirit is if that's going to be kind of a longer lasting legacy of, of this crisis yeah, I mean, I really hope so. And I, and I think you're right. This really is a, a moment where we need to encapsulate those feelings and those behaviours and take them forward. Um, one of the things that I sort of struggle with all the time is we're so good at, at coming together in times of crisis as a country. And we saw that when Joe was killed. The support that myself and my family had from the community locally, 
nationally and actually internationally from people coming together with kindness and compassion to show their support for us is one of the things that got us through we see it when other horrible things happen in the world whether it's a natural disaster or you know some sort of some sort of um, you know tragedy or, or, or particularly divisive um, issue we see people coming together um, and I guess the unique thing about this current situation is literally every single one of us will be impacted in some way, whether that's because of the schooling situation, whether it's because of you've lost a loved one, whether it's the economic fallout from it, you know, whether it's the mental health issues associated with the lockdown, whatever it is, every single person is impacted by it. Um, and I think you're right. What has been so powerful has been how those you know, those really negative emotions have actually pulled people together. And I guess the challenge, the frustration for me is why are we not living like that all the time? Why does it take a crisis to throw us into that sort of mode where we look out for each other a bit more and we support each other a bit more? Um, and, I, you know, if we've got any chance of keeping that going forward, this is it. Because as I say, everybody has been impacted by it. One of the other things I was quite interested in is, is kind of what kind of community was or what kind of community relations we're going to be looking at um as time goes on because i mean your work is all about bringing people together across difference but the reality is that for many of us we're living in communities where the people around us are very similar to ourselves um, and i think we've seen that in kind of studies like the british integration survey um where more people actually live around people with similar backgrounds themselves so i just wondered do you think it's something that we can kind of build on in that way? And do you think, how, how can we go about kind of expanding that community spirit? Yeah, I think it's absolutely something we can build on. And, and indeed, that's what we've sort of tried to do um, since Joe was killed, um, is trying to bring people together as you say, yes, people that you know, people who are like you, but also across lines of difference. And that, that's one of the main reasons we did the great get together. The idea was get to meet somebody who looks different to you or has different beliefs to you or thinks different things to you and actually connect around the words that Joe said about having more in common than that which divides us. And it's challenging work. I mean, it is difficult. And, but I think it's also very important to get the messaging around that very clear. The more in common concept is not about pretending that we're all the same. It's not about pretending that we all agree on everything. And indeed, the world would be a very boring place if we did. But it's about saying that on a human level, uh, particularly as we're seeing when times are tough, um, there are things that connect us. There are things that bind us together. You know, and I often give very simple examples like feeding your kids, paying your bills, you know, getting up and, and, and living in, in, in a peaceful way together. Uh, those are the things that, that bring us together. Um, and and, and, and it's, it's tricky to reach out to people who you think you would have nothing in common with. But I guarantee you, 99.9% .9 of the time, once you meet that person, you will find that you do have commonalities and, and, and things that you share. Um, so it is really challenging work. What we've tried to do at a local level has been very much around building a network of people from all different communities, pulling together the people who really embrace this more in common ethos. Um, and, and that's a really powerful sort of um, starting point. Also working on a cross-sector basis. This is really important to me. I think maybe because of my background, because I worked in the private sector initially, then in the public sector, and then was, was thrown into the voluntary sector. And I think all three sectors have real strengths, uh, but they all have some, some weaker areas as well. So if we pull those strengths together, we can see a huge amount of, uh, of success. So all the events and the things that we do, we get support from um, local businesses and private companies um, who often don't have the time but might be able to throw some money into something. We have a very good working relationship with the council 
um, because the council are really important at a local level, but unfortunately not everybody wants to embrace council initiatives. But then we've got also huge um, support from the voluntary sector and the voluntary sector working together, I think is really important. So we get the mosques working with the schools, working with the local poetry group, working with, you know, all the different um, aspects of the voluntary sector. And instead of competing against each other, which is often hard, particularly when funding's involved, we form a united front around some of the issues that the community faces. So by pulling all that together, I think you've got the biggest chance of success. And we've seen that, like I say, in recent times. Um, so that's something I hang on to, hang my hope on to going forward. Definitely. Um, I mean, I think one of the things that, that's concerned me kind of in the research around COVID that we're doing is looking ahead and looking at what happens next. Like, I think this is a real moment of change and, and we can definitely capitalise on that, but it's going to take a lot of work. But what does what does it look like kind of moving into the future? I think particularly around the economic impact of things. And I mean, I'm no economist, but with people kind of talking about the biggest recession since 1900s and people talking about kind of the levels of joblessness, particularly among young people. And I think we're looking at some really, really, really challenging and difficult times. And as much as this crisis is affecting everyone, it's definitely going to affect some people more than others. And I think as well, it's going to affect some places more than others. And I think one of the concerns for us is what happens in places that maybe don't have the level of community infrastructure that maybe kind of wealthier cities or university towns do. And what do we do in places if it looks like the pubs are going to shut and the libraries are going to shut and the high streets are going to kind of close down in a really accelerated way as a result of this crisis. And how do you think we can better work to maintain some community spirit as times start to get really difficult? I think it's a real challenge. I think you're absolutely right. I think ultimately when times are tough, the danger is that people want to blame someone and that's when divisions can creep in. So again, I think building on the, the community strengthening that has taken place in these months, we have to try and keep that there going forward for as long as possible. And everybody has a responsibility to do that. Um, again, whether it's you know local councils or whether it's the voluntary groups that have been working so incredibly hard, we need to, to keep people together rather than letting the divisions seep in. And I think maybe one of the things to do, and, and I think we have seen some of this, is focusing on the things that are really important in life. And you know, we're, we're probably not all going to have as much money as we might have had, but maybe what we need to do is focus on those human connections more, focus on the simple things like going for a walk with your family rather than necessarily going out and spending loads of money on, on stuff that you don't necessarily need. So I do hope there'll be a kind of change of mindset as to what really matters. Uh, now, clearly, if there's people who are really struggling and, you know, and there's a point where we're struggling to put food on the tables, there is going to need to be intervention. And there's people who are far more qualified than I am to, to, to think about the steps that we can take locally and nationally to ensure that we don't see huge levels of deprivation. But, but I think, you know, the, the rest of us can kind of think about consolidating on the things that we've seen in recent weeks. And like I say, maybe just taking a step back and asking ourselves what is really important um, and, and, and the human things that we can create, which don't cost much. Um, I think is a big part of that. And as soon as we are able, getting those community events back on, getting people back connecting with each other, um, I think that's also really, really important. But there's no two ways about it. It is going to be challenging. Definitely. Because I think, I mean, one of the things that, that we're kind of concerned about, a lot of the research that we've been doing over recent years is looking at what are the drivers of, of kind of hostility or hatred towards other people. And I mean, as you say, it's, it's all those kind of resentments and frustrations and people look for someone to blame. And I think what we're quite concerned about is that 
there's going to be more problems as a result of some of this. And I don't know whether you can talk a little bit about your work in Yorkshire and kind of what that might look like as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, through Joe's foundation and and through the work that I do with with More in Common at a local level, we always speak very positively. We always talk about the things that we can do rather than the things that we can't do. Um, And I know that I often can be a little bit guilty of maybe sounding as if everything's all great. And, And actually, I'm also a realist. I'm an optimistic realist, but I am a realist. And I think we have to be honest about some of the problems our communities face. And where we live, there is segregation, there is division. Um, there is poverty um, and, and, and there's, you know, there's things that are associated with all those things. Um, and, and it's challenging. I mean, I, I'm also aware that a lot of what we've done so far through the great get together and the other work that we do is, is a little bit of preaching to the converted. You know, it's like minded people, even though there's differences within those, those people, it's like minded people coming together. And it's how you reach the people who don't naturally embrace the more in common ethos. That is the real challenge. And it's a real drip, drip process. I mean, we're sort of, it's four years since Joe was killed, but really I've only been doing this sort of, you know, officially or seriously in the last, I would say, two and a half years. And we're only making inroads into some of those more challenging areas now. You know, it doesn't happen overnight. And you have to buy people's trust and you have to buy people's understanding. And I think because people particularly in the past few years, have been so disillusioned with politics um, and the way that, that you know, we've seen people in public life behave. Not all, but a lot. And we've, we've seen some bad behaviour. I think you really need to build trust around not having an agenda other than the greater good. And, and that's really what, you know, what Joe was like. I know it sounds really holier than thou, doesn't it? But that's what she was genuinely like. She just wanted to make a difference and, and, and work on issues that affected people. And that's really what we do through, through More in Common at a local level. There's no egos, there's no agendas, um, and, you know, everybody's welcome. Um, so it's kind of, you know, it's a, it's a long, tough battle. Um, and you're always going to get some people who don't want to engage. But I do think that by bringing people together, particularly, as you say, across lines of difference, and you meet somebody who's black or you meet somebody who's gay or you meet somebody who's in a wheelchair and you suddenly have a chat and you think, do you know what? You're actually all right. You know what? And actually, we are both dealing with the same sorts of problems on a daily basis. Those lines of difference then just don't matter. But a lot of it is about connecting with individuals. And that's what we do through the great get together events. It's very much about you know, and, and sometimes I a bit naughtily call it cohesion by stealth. But that's what it is. We actually put on a great event where there's lots of fun stuff going on, but we're also giving people an opportunity to meet people who are different to themselves and, and, and find that common ground. So I think there's quite a lot of positives to take away from this. I mean, it does feel like it has the potential to be a, a bit of a reset moment. So I think, I mean, is there anything that you would give our listeners as a kind of takeaway? Like if this crisis is going to be a reset moment, um, what do you think people can do in their local communities to help bridge some of those divides? Yeah, I mean, I think really important to consolidate on all the good stuff that's happened in the last few months. Really important. So if you have been keeping an eye on your neighbours, if you have been, you know, volunteering at the food bank, if you have been doing these things, don't stop. Don't draw a, draw a line in the sand and say, well, the crisis is over. We don't need to do that anymore because we do. Because there is going to be a huge fallout from this, particularly around mental health and loneliness and th- those sorts of issues. So keep doing the things that you've been doing. Um, you know, and, and the other thing that we do is, you know, we, we want more people to do this. We have more in common groups across the country, so in other areas. So if you've come together as a response to the crisis through, through one of the mutual aid groups or other groups, then 
keep that going as well maybe and look at other ways that you can work in the community and reach out to the different groups you know so if you've been like you know locally we've had churches working with mosques and we've had older people working with younger people don't let that stop keep it going um, you know and, and, and from our point of view it'd be great if people want to do that as a more in common group uh, and we can help with that through the Joe Cox Foundation um, but it might be that you, you know you set something up smaller and some of the connections that you've made in this time that you wouldn't have made before keep those connections going keep it really strong and keep it powerful thanks for listening your continued support in these difficult times is what we really rely on so please share this podcast or leave a review on your preferred podcast platform and consider becoming a supporter of our Hope Education Fund who work in schools all over the country, in towns and cities, teaching people about the dangers of the far right and what they can do to counter them. <laughs>